Okay, well, it's good to see you. Uh, for those of you who may be newer, or if you're visiting for the first time, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse Church, uh, and I oversee the Praxis Young Adult Ministry. Uh, we're glad to have this time together as a fellowship, uh, just to be able to hang out as well as to study God's Word together. And as uh, Jason mentioned, we are kicking off our sermon series, uh, expositional sermon, on the book of Romans tonight for the first time. So let me go ahead and pray for our time, asking for the Lord's help, and then we will get started. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that all scripture is breathed out and that it's profitable for us. Lord, so um, at least on your end, when you speak, nothing is wasted. But you uh, give to us all that is necessary for life and godliness. And so we pray for humility, for hearts that will <clears throat> be brought under the authority of your word, to be shaped and molded by uh, your truth. Lord, help us to examine your word and see it as a mirror um, to peer at our own hearts and uh, weaknesses, deficiencies, that we might cling to grace and go to you asking for your help and strength, that we would be obedient to all that has been graciously disclosed to us. Lord, I pray that the gospel would uh, ring loudly uh, through the pages of scripture and, uh, Lord, that our hearts would be arrested by um, just the loveliness of Christ and the richness of the good news of salvation. Uh, Lord, that it would be, therefore, our reflex to follow after your son. And so, uh, be with us now, uh, give us attentive uh, minds um, and hearts that are eager to receive. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, uh, tonight we're going to kick off our sermon series that should keep us occupied for quite some time, um, probably for the next few years or decades. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, we will be studying the book of Romans. But fear not, the systematic structure of Romans uh, lends itself to taking breaks um, here and there if we want to insert topical series. Uh, yeah, I think committing ourselves as a fellowship group to this dense theological book will pay dividends in the long haul. Uh, I'm a firm believer that there is no greater nourishment for the Christian soul than to marvel and meditate on the Christian faith. The gospel, which is uh, cleverly enough our sermon series title for the book of Romans, the gospel of God. Because what we'll see is in this masterpiece, Paul pulls out all the stops. He takes his sweet time teasing out all the richness and ramifications of the gospel, God's glorious gospel. And for the apostle, this endeavor is not some thought experiment or academic endeavor. No, Paul meticulously extracts and feeds on the marrow of the gospel so that he'll be changed, so that we'll be changed, fully persuaded and impassioned to live sold out for the glory of God. And that's why it's only after 11 chapters of delving deep into the gospel that Paul turns and exhorts, as we are familiar with in Romans 12, saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, Paul will eventually get to the pragmatics, but in order to get there, he needs to lay a solid foundation. Now, rushing the job will lead us to sinking sand. Paul needs to ensure our duties, our actions, stem from a mind keen on the gospel and our hearts are enamored with Jesus Christ. And this is what he sets out to do, even from the get-go. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And we'll, tonight we'll look at the intro, verses 1 to 7. You can follow along as I read it for us. Romans 1, beginning verse 1. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for tonight, I'm not going to delve a whole lot into the background and the historical context. Hopefully the introduction from last week Kind of set the stage for us. Um, but we'll, what we'll immediately notice from our passage is that um, Paul typically breezes through his introduction. And yet here, he has seven verses, seven verses uh, to lay out his greetings, which means this is Paul's longest introduction. In fact, verses one to seven uh, is really just one long sentence in the Greek, in the original language. Why is that? You know, we see that his actual hello, if you will, uh, doesn't even appear until verse 7. So why this lengthy beginning? Well, Paul has never met these people. He didn't plant this church in Rome. Uh, he doesn't have a personal connection with them. And so maybe he writes as more of a formal introduction to familiarize himself with this church, maybe to establish his credentials. And yet, instead of flaunting his education or accomplishments, instead of regaling this Roman church with uh, his ministry experience or his missionary adventures, he talks about God. You see, this verbose intro is not so much a biopic of the apostle, but his testimony of God. God and his gospel are part and parcel to who Paul is. We love what Spurgeon had to say about uh, the great uh, John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, how if you cut Bunyan, he would bleed Bible. Well, if you took a knife to the chest of the Apostle Paul, you would uncover the gospel beating, coursing through his veins, so saturated that it would even spill over to how he pens his greeting, which I think is automatically convicting, right? 
we only need to ask ourselves, what defines us? What is part and parcel to who we are? Is it career, desire to be married, money, God? We see that the gospel is central to Paul. We see it even in how we'll divide this introduction. For our time, we'll break Paul's greeting into two main headings. Two main headings, the gospel of God, its content, and secondly, the gospel of God, its calling. The content of the gospel, and then the calling of the gospel. First, we'll examine the content of God's gospel. The content of God's gospel. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, or Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, for now, we'll glide past Paul's titles. Just a quick observation. All these titles are a bit passive. They defer and focus on another. Servant of, called to, set apart for. These identities presuppose the authority and superiority of God himself. He is featured, not Paul, not us. It's all about, at the end of verse 1, the gospel of God. In the grand scheme of things, Paul acknowledges he's the stagehand. God is the star of the show, the main character of this drama the hero of redemptive history and future. And get this, ironically, this magnum opus, the letter to the Romans, is Paul's feeble and finite attempt to plumb and mine out the immeasurable depths and infinite worth of God, who he is and what he has done. One commentator pointed it out like this, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. Do you feel the weight of that? Praxis, this should prepare us. Put our hearts in the proper posture. Because if God has a gospel... If he has a message, if he has not only news, but good news, it would serve us well to pay attention, to inch forward and be eager to listen. And as we begin to inspect what Paul writes about this gospel from God, I want you to take note. I want you to compare and contrast. When you think of the Christian faith, the message of good news, how does your understanding and presentation align with Paul's? Is your conception of the gospel on target? Or is it merely a get out, get out of hell card? Or is God a genie at your beckoning to serve your every wishes, your desire for a cushy life? What is the good news according to you? It's a gospel of comfort a gospel of acceptance, a gospel of your imagination, or is it the gospel of God? Now, I'm not saying that we have to parrot Paul and repeat his words verbatim, but there should be similarities, perhaps more than differences. 
There should be the same kind of contour and content when we think of and proclaim the gospel. First, Paul highlights the promise of the gospel. So if you need a subpoint for the content of the gospel, here's the first subpoint: the promise of the gospel. We continue by reading verse 2. So this gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And prophets is used loosely here. Paul is not referring to the actual office or specific prophets like Elijah. He's talking more broadly, speaking about the overall message, the prophetic testimony of the entire Old Testament, that as a unit, it foretells of a promise. Why a promise? Well, because things are very broken. You only need to read up to Genesis 3 to see this. And man sins, is cursed, driven away from God under the eternal condemnation he justly deserves. But then what? God graciously intervenes. On the very day that sin enters the world and the heart of man, God makes a promise. He will provide a savior, someone to crush the serpent's head and redeem us from the power and penalty of sin. The promise of a Messiah, God's special chosen anointed one who would come and rescue us. You see, before the gospel is ever good news, we have to accept the bad news. A savior is only necessary when we need saving. But guess what? We are stubborn, right? We don't like to admit when we're wrong or weak. So to bruise our egos and make it plain, man's wretchedness is paraded throughout the Old Testament. You know the stories, how God calls forth a nation, the Israelites, and he sets his affection upon them. And we wonder when we're reading it for the first time. Hey, maybe they'll be able to make amends, do right, return and worship God. But no matter what advantages the people receive, the only thing that they are true to is not their God, but their sin. You know, bring them out of Egyptian captivity, provide judges to deliver, appoint kings to rule over them, priests to intercede, prophets to warn, bless them with land, prosperity, victory. The outcome though, is always the same. The people go astray. By the end of the Old Testament, as we study in the book of Malachi, if you were with us, the conclusion is unanimous. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. But against this bleak backdrop, the hope of the gospel is sprinkled in. Throughout the dark account of Israel's history, there are flickers of light. Though the people can't save themselves, God assures them that he can. His vow is still intact. So that when we come to the New Testament, we need to understand Jesus didn't randomly fall from the sky in Matthew 1.1. No, but you find glimpses of him. And the plan of salvation scattered throughout the Old Testament. So here's one simple application. Don't be afraid or despise the Old Testament. Read it. Read it because it's about Jesus, 
Not every verse, character, or reference is explicitly Jesus, but it all prepares us to see Jesus when he finally shows up. Read the Old Testament, because to avoid it is to ignore over half of God's special revelation and then to suffer for it. I mean, imagine how baffled you'd be if you jumped into the middle of your latest book or TV show, um, Harry Potter or Mandalorian or Twilight. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you guys read or watch these days. Um, but if you sat down and say you started with episode five of a Korean drama, do you know how confused you would be? Uh, it's already hard enough trying to follow the plot line from the beginning, right? I mean, personally, I get confused just by these, the, the titles of some of these Korean dramas, like Crash Landing on You. Is that about aliens or, or this airplane that collides with the main character? I don't know. I'll never watch it. But if you start in the middle of any of these series, these stories, you better be ready to be lost. Granted, you might be able to get a sense of what's going on, but you'd still be severely handicapped from truly understanding and appreciating the story, why the plot twist works, or how the ending is satisfying. Now, on a greater scale, we forfeit the richness and wisdom of God's redemptive story when we neglect the Old Testament, all the suspense, drama, and promises it contains. And let me just give you one example, hopefully to persuade you. Book of Leviticus, where all our Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, in that book, it details all the tedious sacrifices the Israelites were to offer, right? All these uh, really, really meticulous instructions and protocols for bringing oxen and cattle and goats to atone for the people's sin. But none of it fully worked. That's why these sacrifices needed to be offered repeatedly. They were ongoing. There was temporary appeasement, but no final payment. The blood of bulls and goats proved incapable of dealing with sin once and for all. And there's a lesson in all of this. Even as it bores you, while you're trudging along through the book of Leviticus. You see, the futility is paving the way. So when Jesus arrives on scene and John the Baptist announces, look, you've tried in vain for centuries with your animal sacrifices, but behold the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everyone's mind would have been blown. All this latent training from the sacrificial system of old comes to a head, comes to bear now. Previous lambs were blemished and imperfect, but what about the lamb that God brings and offers? What can this lamb, this lamb of God do? That's just one example. It's been said that the Old Testament is promises made and the New Testament is promises kept. And so it's really hard to grasp the latter without the first. The Old Testament contains the blueprint of God's gospel. We learn about his plan of salvation through the promised Messiah. 
that his mother will be a virgin. He will descend from the line of David, even as we will read in Romans. He will be born in puny Bethlehem. He will be called Emmanuel. He will die on the cross. And we pick up all these breadcrumbs because it leads us to Jesus. So when Jesus comes, excitement builds. Our hearts are warmed because he checks off on all the boxes. The promised Savior has arrived, which brings us to our second subpoint in the content of God's gospel. Next, Paul highlights the person, the person of the gospel. Verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the gospel is not just a message or good news containing ancient information or Bible trivia. The gospel is also not about being part of the in crowd and exclusive club that knows the secret knowledge or how we spend our weekends and attend church on Sundays or a set of moral principles to subscribe to. Now, the gospel fundamentally is about Jesus Christ. And what's promised culminates in a person. And time and time again, Paul showcases Jesus in our passage. In fact, if you cut out verse 2, which is more of a aside, a parenthetical statement, we can see what, or more accurately, who is really being spotlighted. Let's follow along. Paul set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son. Even the grammar of our passage lends to this. All these relative pronouns further expanding on the centrality of Jesus Christ. You have who in verse 3, through whom in verse 5. It's all tied and traced back to him. And in these verses, Paul is sketching a profile of Jesus for us, explaining the significance of his humanity and his divinity. Jesus has descended from David. If you know your Old Testament, David was arguably the greatest king of Israel. But more importantly, the line from which God guaranteed to raise his eternal king, the Messiah. But questions still remain, because what is it that distinguishes Jesus from all the other descendants, from all the other offspring of David? I mean, Solomon was pretty impressive, but he clearly wasn't the Savior God promised. So what makes Jesus so special? What makes him the one? Well, look at these verses, and you can see the parallelism that Paul draws. He juxtaposes the flesh in verse 3 and the spirit of holiness in verse 4. Yes, Jesus is the son of David, but he's more. Not only according to the flesh, but the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. It's why if you think about Jesus' life on earth, he constantly had to back up his assertions. He had his skeptics and critics. Most of the time, he was not welcomed with open arms. No, people doubted his purported origins, his claims. So they put him under the magnifying glass. They observed him closely to see if he could actually walk the walk. And throughout his ministry, Jesus demonstrated he could. 
that he wasn't just a talker. Like no one before, the scriptures tell us Jesus taught, Jesus teaches with authority. He performs signs and wonders. He does the miraculous to reveal his power, his identity, to show that he is divine. And the definitive answer is found at the cross. His resurrection. You see, you, you might try to dismiss his claims and come up with fanciful explanations when he walks on water, when he casts out demons, you know, like, oh, I'm sure it's some sleight of hand, some illusion. Jesus is just pulling a fast one on us. But every mouth is shut. Every lip is sealed. When Jesus performs the greatest miracle, when he defeats death, when he resurrects from the grave, because then and only then, what other explanation can you offer? This must be the power of the spirit of holiness. It validates Jesus, his identity, his life, his teaching, his message. After three dead days, when Jesus burst forth from the tomb, radiating with life, the declaration is deafening. There's no question about it. He's no con artist. He's no lunatic. He is Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of God. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the gospel. Good news. Promise of salvation fulfilled in a person. Now, up to this point in the sermon, we've primarily been observers. We've been considering, mulling over the promises of God and the person of Jesus Christ. But the gospel, you see, isn't just good content. This news is so profound, so potent, it radically transforms those who genuinely receive it. We reach our second main heading, the call of God's gospel. So we just studied the content of God's gospel. Now we turn to examine the call of God's gospel. And there are two aspects to this point as well. One that we tend to often overlook, and the other we probably more readily associate with the idea of calling. Let's continue to the end of our passage, resuming in verse 5. Through whom, so we're still talking about Jesus, but now... Uh, we're going to be drawn in through whom we, so there we are, we're now involved in this gospel message, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, the call of the gospel is affection, the call of affection. And yes, you heard me right. Now, when we think of the call of the gospel, what should immediately seep into our minds is God's affection, his fatherly love for his own. And I find that so insightful. I find that so convicting because truth be told, this is usually not the first thought to cross our minds, right? When we think of the calling of God, our instinct is to think of what we do. You know, we, we say, well, my calling is to be an engineer or a teacher for the glory of God. 
or how we're called to the mission field or called to serve and practice by leading the small group. And certainly that's part of what it means to be called for the gospel of God, as we'll soon see. But that's secondary. Notice where Paul puts the emphasis. Verse 5, we have received grace. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Paul defines calling first and foremost, not by vocation, but by affection. Not by our behaving, but by our belonging. Before we do anything for God, in the gospel, he does everything for us. The relationship precedes the role. And as a father, my children are mine, regardless of their future occupation, what they achieve on the soccer field, or how well they do their chores. And it's not like those things don't matter, like they're trivial. No. But I want my kids to understand that they are loved by their father before they ever lift a finger or comply with my instruction. The apostle here is wrapping us in a warm blanket. The call of the gospel is to recognize that you have been reconciled to God himself, that you belong to Jesus Christ. It's a verse we love and cherish, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Belong is essentially just the intimate version of being set apart. Think about that. Let that kind of recalibrate or tweak your understanding of what it means to be called, of what it means to be holy, not merely a clean lifestyle or conservative ethic. No, it's the overflow of a heart that is overwhelmed at belonging to God, being his child. And this is why it's so important to start here. Because if you get it backwards, you'll see Christianity as something destructive, oppressive, as sheer duty or a killjoy. You know, I have to read my Bible. I can't love money. I shouldn't cuss. Only hymns should uh, come out of these lips. You'll distort the gospel and God's righteousness as something to earn instead of something he gives. But listen, it is no burden to obey when you know you're already loved. As Christians, our doing is not driven by a desire to win his approval, but because in Christ we already have it. That's why we're different. That's why we do the things we do, not to merit his love, but because we are loved. This then produces, prompts us to the second part of the calling of God's gospel. From the call of affection to the call of action. The call to action. If we rewind to verse 1, even Paul knew the proper order. He announces he's a servant of Christ Jesus, and then he he's formally called as an apostle. You see the pattern there? First, belonging to Jesus. Secondly, sent out 
for Jesus' purposes. But this commission to action is not only reserved for those who hold that special office. And jump down to verse 5. There it is again. Through Jesus Christ, we receive grace and apostleship. Grace, yes, to be loved by God and in relationship with him, but also we receive our marching orders, the apostleship. Again, this doesn't mean that we are all apostles in the strictest and technical sense like Paul or the other 12, but in principle, in spirit, if you will. After all, apostle in its broadest definition just means sent one. And as Christians, we receive the good news and then we go and live in light of that good news. We are redeemed as salt and light, sent out for a distinct purpose. And what is that purpose? We only need to read on. To bring about the obedience of faith. So let me ask, does obedience fit into your understanding of the gospel, of the call of the gospel? You know, in our conservative theological circles, that sounds very taboo, right? We like to tout that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And that is accurate, right, and true. But I fear in emphasizing the free gift of the gospel, we can inadvertently diminish the place of obedience. And yet the book of James states faith without works. Faith without works is a dead faith. So try that on for size. Did you know that there's more than one faith? Authentic faith and a dead one, a fake one. True saving faith always has an eye towards obedience. So yes, justification is by faith alone, as we will see in the coming chapters of Romans. Justification, yes, is by faith alone. But as the reformer said, this faith never comes alone. It always brings obedience and works in tow. Which is why Paul connects the dots as he does. He says this is the obedience of faith. Did you catch that? The obedience of faith. Not the faith of obedience. It's faith's obedience, not obedience faith. While the two are inseparable, one is the source for the other. And this phrase, obedience of faith, is so unique in the New Testament. It's only found here and at the end of Romans. Romans 16, 26. And that serves as a literary device, as a way to bracket, bookend, to teach us. All that Paul will wax eloquent on. All this heavy theology on faith in between chapters 1 and 16 is aimed at action. It's to produce faithful followers of Christ for the praise of his name. Praxis, take stock of your life. How have you been doing with all that has been entrusted to you? All this knowledge of God and his gospel. You know, are you a bobblehead believer? Inflated in the brain but lacking everywhere else. You know, it's good to grow in our understanding. But after Bible reading, after equip classes, do you don all this armor and weaponry only to sit back on the couch? Or are you engaged in pursuing Christ, pursuing others? Has a deepened understanding of Jesus produced a deepened love for him and for those around you? 
Learning about forgiveness should incline us to be more forgiving. Reveling in the grace of Jesus should compel us to be generous with what we have. The holiness of God should engender purity in mind and speech. Is this what's being promoted in your life and in the lives of those around you? Or, or are you more like a sink plug? Everything poured into your life just stops with you. The call of gospel is faith into action. Whereas one theologian put it, faith and obedience are bound together like thunder and lightning. I like that. I wish I came up with that, but I didn't. Um, but you get his point. It can't just be all noise. can't just be all show. We need both. Because obedience cannot be divorced from the gospel. Now, if your heresy alarm is going bonkers, consider this. Even the gospel message is not without obedience. The only difference is it's not yours. The gracious offer of salvation is achieved and applied by the obedience of Jesus Christ. That without his works, there would be no good news. And what he has accomplished in redemption sets the trajectory for the redeemed. We often turn to um, favorite passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as a fitting summary to the gospel message, and rightly so. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we do ourselves a disservice if we stop right there. Because guess what? There is more. There is a verse 10, which says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the Bible doesn't teach that obedience is unnecessary. No, the Bible only clarifies the relationship, the dynamic. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. All this is, as verse 5 tells us, for the sake of his name. I think we get this name. It's about representation. When Lance Armstrong was discovered to be doping or Tiger Woods to be unfaithful, they lost a ton of advertising deals. These businesses wanted to distance themselves. They were sending a message to the world. This is not what our company stands for. These are not our brand ambassadors. How much higher is our calling as Christians, as those redeemed by God? Your obedience of faith is telling of your object of faith. Your obedience of faith is telling of your object of faith. We display God or the kind of God we say we believe and worship by how we live. Our conduct, our relationships, our spending, our aspirations in life should fall under this giant standard. That God would have no problem pointing his finger at us and saying, this is what I stand for. This is what a Christian looks like. He or she is my ambassador. Do you see the grand implication of this? We don't have to disregard or minimize the ordinary, the routine, or the boring. Everything 
is on the plate. Everything is significant because everything can be done for the name of Christ and God's glorious gospel. In fact, the text tells us this is one way God designs to send his message to the world, to disseminate the gospel among all the nations. Don't underestimate the reach impact of a faithful and godly life. You know, with over 25,000 miles to circle the globe of a population larger than 7 billion, we can often feel very small. We assume we're lost in the mix, thinking that what we do in our little enclave, in our little room, on our little MacBook Airs, has little consequence for the world. But Paul weaves us into this marvelous tapestry of the gospel. That from Rome to where Paul is when he pens this letter, to centuries later as we reside today in Torrance, PV, Redondo Beach, Arcadia for me, or wherever else you may be, the gospel can still be heard, seen, and spread every time we obey. Even in this Zoom service like this one. To wrap it all up, we'll land on one word. From Paul to those he writes in Rome, those loved by God are called, in a nutshell, to be saints. Saints. And condense it all there. It's such a common word in the New Testament, right? It's one that's easy to gloss over. But I just want to point out one revealing factoid. And in the New Testament, as far as I know, saints is never used in the singular as a reference to an individual believer. It's always plural, highlighting not a person, but a people, a community set apart for God. The gospel content is not exclusive to a single individual, but offered to a category, sinners, in order to save and redeem them into a collective group, saints. And then the gospel's calling is not for us to live our solo Christian lives as maverick people, but to commit ourselves to the obedience of faith, both in our own lives and each other. The gospel, you see, is too glorious to be contained. It must be enjoyed until it is shared and displayed in community, which is why Paul writes to begin with. After all, you'll remember, Paul's never met these brothers or sisters in Christ, but he understands he's bound to them by the glorious gospel of God. I know for our group, some of you have really struggled with loneliness and isolation this past year. You know, online service uh, is, is definitely still a grace from God, but it's still not all that it's meant to be. And your gut reaction maybe to the announcements of outdoor service at our church is, well, how's that going to really change things? You know, it's only going to make these realities of uh, my, my struggles more pronounced. You have to sit by yourself, party of one. But can I suggest perhaps your approach and thinking on the church is a little off. Sure, there's no denying that when we go to our church ourselves, we derive some personal 
benefit, some personal spiritual benefit. But the driving motivation for church has always been about the congregation, the saints, the building up of the body of Christ, whether we meet indoors or outdoors like now. Now, please hear me clearly. Hear this disclaimer. If you have extenuating circumstances, health issues, or safety reasons for not attending, then by all means, love people by refraining. For a season, at least. You know, we need to exercise wisdom and grace. But I hope, I hope that your decision-making process is governed not by your own wishes or your own comforts, but by the content and call of God's gospel even if you are going to continue streaming services. Because our default setting is to be with the people of God because we are the people of God, to be saints together rather than apart. Now, if you're concerned about being forgotten or having no one to greet you, then know that you're not alone in this. Share it. We are meant to bear one another's burdens. And it's the only way the struggle will be known. It's the only way you will be known. I mean, you can tell me if you're going to the same service and I'll do my best to say hi. And even if I fail, I know others will pick up the slack because that's what saints are called to do. The way I see it, you can remain distant from the only possible context to tackle and address your struggle with loneliness or any other difficulty or sin. Or you can stick your neck out there, put yourself in a position where gospel community happens, where the gospel of God is celebrated. And I'm so blessed by this group. I say this uh, earnestly. You know, Pastor Nicole, our, uh, our church admin, for a list of Praxis people showing up to the outdoor service. And don't worry, it's not to pass judgment or to keep tabs like Big Brother. It's just so that I can be on the lookout for those to greet and move towards. But what encourages my heart the most is when I see this list, most of the Praxis people who sign up, sign up because they want to serve. They want to participate in the community of the gospel and the responsibility to edify saints. And so you guys are a living example to me of even this introduction of this passage. My heart is stirred to see those called by God embracing his family, whether in person or not, online or outdoor, to delight in God's grace and peace and share in the content and calling of God's gospel. Let's pray. Lord, how kind you are to us, that in Christ, Lord, you have revealed the manifold wisdom of your redemptive plan, that you would save us, Lord, that you would provide your son, that we might be restored and reconciled to you, and then to be brought back into a family, your family, Lord, that we might have brother. Uh, fellow brothers and sisters to sharpen and encourage us to run the race with endurance, with faithfulness, growing in obedience to Christ, that we might display to the world how lovely it is to be known by you, to belong to Jesus, to be loved. Lord, we pray that would overwhelm us until it would be our natural desire and reaction to apply your word, to live out your gospel, to know it as truth, not only in our heads, but uh, in all that we do, that we would exalt Christ, that we'd be defined and transformed by the good news 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.